what I want to preach on today is I'm going to be preaching out of Mark 9 in a moment under the broader banner of faith and doubt and what do we do with our doubts. What do we do with our doubts? Because in one way or another, at some point in life, all of us experience doubts of some kind, particularly about God. We wonder if we can believe his promises. We question whether he's really good. We're skeptical of his plans or purposes. People will say things like, well, God has a plan. He works all things together for good. And it's just very hard to believe sometimes. It's hard to absorb that. We wonder if he really hears us when we pray. And sometimes these are besetting doubts. Like we just wrestle with them. And otherwise, other, sometimes they're just thoughts that pop into our head here and there. They're things that come and go. But for all of us, in some sense, doubts are normal. Or at least they're common. They're common to all of us. But what's odd is that despite doubt being common, we feel uniquely isolated in it. Um, when, when we doubt, we tend to feel alone. I'm the only person who thinks this. I'm the only person with this question. I can't possibly share this because somebody will think I'm a freak or I'm, I'm unfaithful or there's just a, there's an isolating aspect to doubt. It closes us in on, that, on ourselves. And then on top of that, we often feel guilty, especially those of us who have been in the Christian world, in the church for most of our lives. Because doubt is something that we see well, that's, that's not acceptable. So we're going to be judged by somebody in the church or worse, judged by God. And so doubt has this profoundly isolating effect where it makes us feel like we can't talk to others freely, necessarily, especially not in many church contexts, and we feel separated from the Lord. I can't possibly be close to God if I have questions about God's goodness or His faithfulness or His promises or His, his plans. So when we begin to feel the weight of doubt, that sort of crushing isolation, and I said when, not if, because it, it is something that will land on all of us in, in some way at some time, there are some important truths that we need to remember about who we are, who God is, and then what God says in his word. So first, we need to remember that doubt at its foundation simply means I don't know. It just means I don't know. Well, as finite human beings, people with limited understanding, limited knowledge, limited lifespan, we're limited in every way a person can be limited, we can never know everything about God. Like the, the rules of truth are that God is infinite and we are not, and so we can't possibly know everything about God. He's infinite. So as we seek to understand God more, we're, we are going to run into questions. That's just how it works. We can't get our minds around his infinite goodness because all of the goodness that we experience in this world has limitations on it. It comes to an end or it's tainted in some way. It's not perfectly good, it's just sort of good. Or it's good for a while and then it stops. It becomes corrupted. We can't get our mind around his infinite wisdom because the only wisdom we're familiar with is something that is prone to a mistake or that has answers for one little area of expertise but not all of the areas of life. So we can't get our heads around the infinite wisdom of God. We can't fathom his infinite power. Every power we encounter is over something very specific, so it's an area of authority that's specific to 
uh, a government or a home or an institution. And most power in this earth is corrupted in some way. Power tends to twist people towards selfish motives. So God being infinitely good, infinitely wise, infinitely powerful, just, it doesn't even blow our minds. It just sort of resides outside of our ability to understand. We, we can't understand it all. But this doesn't mean that we can't know anything about God. We can't know everything, but it doesn't mean we can't know anything. And we can't expect that we should understand everything he does or says or thinks. So this is, a, this is a, a tension that a lot of us are uncomfortable with. We think if we can't understand God in full, we can't trust him in full. The idea that we can only understand aspects of who God is, a portion of who God is, and then trust him based on that is very uncomfortable. We want more answers. We want clearer answers. We want better answers. We want God to explain himself in full, except we don't have the capacity for that. And I think this is why faith is defined in Hebrews as the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Because you have words like assurance and conviction, which are confident. These are, these are words of what we are building our faith on. And then you have hoped for and not seen. There is an element of that's beyond us. Faith, by definition, means having confidence in something that is beyond us. That's how Scripture defines it for us. But we can know so much about God through his word by that faith that I just mentioned. Just not the whole of God. So when we run up against a purpose or a plan or a command or a promise that we don't understand or we just are struggling to trust, where does it leave us? It usually leaves us with, I don't understand. I'm not sure. I don't know. All of which adds up to doubts even about God, are not necessarily sinful. They're a product of our limitations. They can be sinful, and we'll, we'll talk about that. So when we are a questioning person, that's not a bad thing. That's just who we are. And that leads us to the second reality about who God is and what his word says, and that is that God expects questions from us. He didn't create us the intention of us knowing everything. He created us to depend on him. He anticipates our questions. He's okay with them even. God gave us this book. He gave us scripture not to show us everything about himself, but his essential nature, who he is, who he wants us to know that he is, the core of who he is. And the more we dig into scripture, the more questions are going to come up. Because this doesn't encapsulate everything about God. That would be impossible. So the more we seek to understand God, the more questions we encounter, which can, which can tie us in knots. We encounter more questions, more potential doubts, even as we're seeking to know the Lord better. And in fact, if we don't have questions, I wonder if we're growing in our faith. I wonder if we're seeking to know the Lord more. If we are sort of passively satisfied with our understanding of God, we've given up. We don't know God. We've tapped out. So the Bible offers us this clear depiction of God's character and an outline of his plan and these very specific promises and commands that he gives us. 
where he says, I will and you must. And there's not a lot of need for question about those. And he tells us of his work to create and to redeem all of creation and souls. And we can always count on those things. The things that are written in Scripture are unassailable. We can count on those. But it will raise questions. It doesn't tell us everything about God. So where does that bring us to? One of the ways that Scripture portrays what we can trust about God is through the stories of how Christ interacts with those who doubt. And there are a bunch of these. I love that they're stories because the Bible is full of propositional statements. This is true. This is true. Believe this. You must do this. These, these imperatives, these commands, these descriptions. And a story is something else entirely. It's something you kind of get drawn into. And you can put yourself in the place and say, I, I, I understand this experience. This resonates with me. And one of the clearest stories, one of my favorites, about Jesus interacting with doubters is in Mark 9, uh, verses 14 to 29. So let me give you a little context on this, and then I'll read that whole passage. At this point, Jesus is well into his ministry. He has done numerous miracles. He's fed the 5,000. He's walked on water. He's calmed the sea. Um, he has raised a young girl from the dead, and he's coming down off of the Mount of Transfiguration. So it is this moment of transcendent glory where Jesus is probably in the most, um, uh, the, the clearest time on earth seen in all of his heavenly glory as the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament brought about. He comes down off of the Mount of Transfiguration into kind of a hubbub. And that's where we pick up uh, that's where we pick up in Mark 9, verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, so that's uh, Jesus and Peter and James and John, when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out that the boy was like, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. 
There's a lot that could be said about this passage. It is rich. But this morning I just have three observations about Jesus and his response to doubters from this passage. So three observations. The first is this. Despite his doubts, the Father came to Jesus. Despite his doubts, the Father came to Jesus. I think there's a question that we need to answer right up front, which is how do we know the Father doubted? It doesn't actually say anything about doubt clearly in the passage. And there's two ways. The first is by putting ourselves in his shoes. This is one of the best parts of stories in Scripture is the ability to put yourself in the shoes of what is happening because he's just a normal dad like many of us. He's just a normal person. And if I had a child who for years had been assailed with this kind of torment, had been physically ill, had been on the verge of death, was under the oppression of an evil spirit that was, as the text says, seeking to kill him. And I had tried everything in my power, in the doctor's power, in the rabbi's power, in the priest's power, in whoever's power to solve this, and it was still happening, I would doubt. I suspect you would too. Maybe in a how long, O oh Lord, sort of way. Maybe in a is this ever going to change sort of way. I don't, I don't know what shape it would take, but I would doubt. And we know that the father doubted also by his own words. One, he uses the word if. If you can do anything, Jesus. He doesn't say because you can do this, because I know you'll do this. He's not sure. This is if. And then he says, help my unbelief which is a real clear statement that he was burdened with and very well aware of his own lack of faith, his own weak faith. So he came to Jesus in a state of doubt, but he acted in faith. He acted in belief. So he said, I believe, help my unbelief. He acted out of that confession of I believe to bring something that he was unsure about to the feet of Jesus. He took his lack of sureness to Jesus. All those years of fear and struggle and hopelessness and saying, if you can do anything. And this is exactly what we should do in a time of crisis or doubt. The text doesn't say once he achieved answers, he came to Jesus. It says he brought his problems to Jesus. We need to go to Christ before we try to fix everything. Our instinct is always get it right first or hide it, or suppress it, or pretend it doesn't exist. It's not, I am a mess, I have so many questions, I'm walking into the presence of Christ with all that. But that's what the Father does. And in fact, often Jesus is the last place we want to take doubts because we fear that he's not safe. We fear that he will judge us, that he will be harsh to us, that he wants us to get our stuff together. We fear how we might be received. Will my questions offend him? He knows them already. Telling him is an act of faith. And we'll look more at how Jesus responds momentarily. But for now, I want to focus on that act of faith by the Father, the fact that he took his doubts to the Son of God. Second, he openly and humbly admitted his doubts to Jesus. So not only did he come in a state of doubting and life being a mess, he then just laid it out humbly. He didn't airbrush anything. He didn't 
try to make the situation look better than it was. He did this in front of a crowd. He showed up desperate and humble and needy, and what better way to approach Jesus? He didn't pretend to be confident. We do this all the time. I think even in our prayers, we need to word things just so, so that it will be received well by God. Or maybe we do it so that it will be received well by the people in the room. But there is a, a polishing of our faith, an airbrushing, a kind of a veneer and a filter that we put on things that are just a desperate mess, that are just a big, I don't know what to do with this. And we think we need to get our answers and fix our problems and clarify our thoughts and collect knowledge before we come to Christ. But all we ever bring is need. It's just whether we're being honest about it or lying about it. Are we coming to Christ with honest need or are we coming to Christ pretending we don't have the need that we have? We always only bring need and that's all that Jesus asks for. Because He says, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. That's exactly what this father did. Laboring and heavy laden is a perfect description for what he was experiencing. And he did what Jesus said. He came and he was given rest. But humble and honest and laid bare is the most uncomfortable state for us. We hate it. And that's because in this world, it's not usually safe. To be safe in our honesty and our vulnerability and our lack of faith is something that only Christ brings about in a body of believers, in our relationship with him, between people. That's, that's a work of God always. But that's the state that brings us to a place of being ready for the help that Christ offers. Anything else is an obstacle between us and what Jesus is giving us. So the Father spoke these simple words on which so much of the Christian life is based. It's I believe, help my unbelief. And it sounds like a contradiction in terms. It sounds like he's, he's, he's waffling in the moment. He's kind of an emotional yo-yo. But I don't think that's at all what it is. He's just very well aware of the state of his heart. And it was faith that brought him to Jesus and doubt that brought him to Jesus. He expressed the faith he had, probably what Jesus would call faith like a mustard seed, this tiny little seed of faith that Jesus says, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you can move mountains. Great things will come about. And he says, I believe, and he has some sense of confidence that Jesus might be able to do something. That's enough. That's enough. And then he announced that he lacked strong faith. That he was riddled with doubt. Looking the Son of God in the face and saying, help my unbelief, is the best and worst thing. It's the worst because of the, the confession that it is, and it's the best because we're better to go with that need. The Father trusted the character of Jesus to be gracious and understanding and kind. He recognized the heart of the Good Shepherd. Something in him said, this, this is the man to whom I can say, I lack faith. I'm not strong enough. I can't do it. He didn't fear judgment. Or maybe he did fear and he, over, and he just did it in, in spite of it. And he was right to believe and come to Jesus because of the third observation. 
Look at how Jesus responded. Jesus met the man's need. And that's what he does for doubters. Now in this case, he healed the man's son because Jesus hates the hurt and the evil brought about by the demonic, by pain. He made a practice throughout the book of Mark of healing, of casting out demons, of showing his authority and his lordship over a fallen world and giving a, an indication of what he was to bring about in redeeming the earth when he returns. And so he acts in this case. So there's the large-scale meeting of a need. Jesus does this big-scale declaration of, I am the Lord over the spiritual realm. I am the Lord over all things that are beyond you. But on the personal side, he gave the man precisely what he needed to answer that prayer, help my unbelief. He didn't say, be clothed and be fed and send him on his way. He did the one thing that would restore that man's faith. And so what he does for every doubter who approaches him, whatever is needed to help their unbelief, to help our unbelief, to draw us close to him and to show his nature and character. So in this case, he gave the man what he asked for, but that won't always be the case. What the man asked for in this case was a liberation from evil. That's the thing Jesus loves to give. But often what we go to God thinking we need is really just what we want, and we don't know best. It's what we think we need. So we have this, I mentioned earlier, a limited perspective, and often a self-serving one. It's health, safety, security, financial uh, peace. And these build comfort. They don't necessarily build faith. A big bank account does not help our faith. Health doesn't help our faith. Safety doesn't help our faith. Those are things that actually remove our need for faith oftentimes. And so we go to God asking for those things, and we're not given those necessarily. We might be. But at the risk of sounding too much like the Rolling Stones, we can't always get what we want, but we will always get what we need when we come to Jesus. He knows what it is that we need to answer the prayer, help my unbelief. So we may go asking for a certain kind of comfort or security or peace, and he says, that's not for you. Wait a little longer. Stay with me. Talk with me. Be close to me. He does whatever is needed to build our faith. And as time goes on and we see him at work, we learn to pray like he prayed. Not my will, but yours be done. Moreover, Jesus didn't judge this man for his doubts. There are some pointed words in this text when he calls them a faithless generation and he gives some correction. But I think that falls under the doing what is necessary to build their faith. Sometimes to build our faith, we need to be told to straighten up and fly right. Get our heads out of the sands. Don't think like an idiot. There's a touch of that in what Jesus says. He's like, come on, y'all. I've been doing this for years now. You don't, you don't recognize it? But he's not begrudging in his help of the man because he does that and then immediately says, bring the boy to me. It's an invitation to help. And then in verse 23, Jesus says, so the father says, if you can help, would you? And Jesus says, if you can. All things are possible for the one who believes. And you could read this as him sort of laughing at the man, sort of like, if you can. Do you know who I am? But I don't, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think what he's saying here is more of that parental or paternal sentiment of why didn't you come to me sooner? Of course I can help you. If one of my kids is 
buried in math homework and in tears, and they refuse to ask for help, my response ought to be, and they can tell you this is not always the case, why didn't you come to me sooner? Of course I can help. Oh, math's a bad example. English. I can help with English. And, and so it's not a, what's the matter with you? It's a, come on, I've got this. I've got you. I can help you. And I think that's what Jesus is communicating. He wants the Father and us to have no doubts that he's both willing and infinitely able to meet our needs. It's an invitation. So at the beginning of the message, I said that doubt is not necessarily a sin. It can simply be not knowing or not being sure. That ought to be a comfort for us. Because when there's a question, it doesn't mean we are immediately in opposition to Christ. That's an opportunity to draw closer to Christ, for him to reveal something of himself that we haven't seen before. Whether doubt is sinful, whether it's that, that sort of doubt that begins to erode our faith and pull us away from Christ, depends on what we do with it. What do we do with our doubts? Are we taking them to the feet of Jesus? Are we humbly admitting our needs to him? If there is something about God's plans or God's purposes or God's promises that we are struggling to believe and we take that back to the Lord and say, I don't know how to believe this, that's not eroding our faith. That's asking the Lord to help our unbelief. Or we can demand that Jesus answer on our terms. Like when people showed up and said, do a sign. Prove my faith. Make, make me believe in you by doing a sign. We can reject the answers that his word gives because we find it unpalatable or unpleasant or inconvenient or not on our time frame. People do this all the time. They say, God didn't answer my prayer. Well, maybe God didn't answer your prayer yet. Maybe God said, no. That's an answer. What you're doing if you say that is saying, I didn't like the answer God gave. I know better than he does. Or we seek answers elsewhere because we've determined that Jesus can't be trusted. Those are the kinds of doubt, the responses to doubt that erode our faith. The moment our eyes leave Christ with questions and we begin to take them to another source of quote-unquote wisdom, we begin to look internally and say, I think I know better and God owes me. We're just reprising what Adam and Eve did in the garden when they wanted the knowledge that only God could have because they believed the lie that they too could be gods and we're holding God as, as if he is beholden to us when we respond that way. So do we follow in the footsteps of this father or do we demand of Jesus, reject what Jesus says because we simply dislike it? Or do we leave Jesus altogether and seek answers elsewhere? This story and so many others like it show us precisely what we can do with our doubts and even better, what Jesus will do in response. This isn't a story about the father primarily. This is a story about Jesus and his response. And that's where we draw the hope from. The hope is not do these three things and your doubts will be reconciled. The hope is Jesus will receive you when you bring your doubts to him. We can come to him. We can admit our deepest needs and most burdensome questions, our most shameful thoughts, 
those things that we feel like utter fools if we say it in a church small group or to a friend or whatever because, because we, ought to know, we ought to know better, we feel like. And he will absolutely, compassionately, readily, and constantly do whatever it is that we need to help our unbelief. Friends, that should be the prayer of every one of us. I believe, help my unbelief. Because it's a double confession. It's a confession of what we believe and who we believe in. And it's a confession of failure and sin. And as Christians, isn't that what we are to be doing? Confessing Christ constantly and repenting constantly for all the ways we fail to do the former. I believe, help my unbelief. Because we do believe in a very real Jesus who has invited us to bring our needs and our doubts to him. And we have nowhere else to take our doubts that offers that kind of hope. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the revelation that you have given us of who you are. I thank you that you are beyond our understanding, but you have given us this book to show us exactly what we need to know of you. I pray that everybody in this room would rest on the character and the promises and the work and the plan that you have given us in Scripture. And Lord, I pray for those who are burdened with doubt, who feel ashamed because of their questions, who have drifted with their fears, doubts, questions, burdens away from Christ, that they would recognize that you are inviting us to you. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Pray that we would believe that invitation and believe the Christ who said it. May that be defining pursuit for us as a constant coming to Jesus with our need for help for our unbelief. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.